at this time was barren. God had expected a fruitful, faithful group of people to follow him and to express that, and they have not been. Remember the sad account at the end of the book of Judges, which runs right into 1 Samuel, that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This is a self-indulgent, self-righteous nation that has forgotten God and is paying the penalty for this. And this has risen even up into the priesthood. We're not going to get there yet. And we're going to move rather quickly through Samuel. We're not, going to, we're not going to be able to linger on every thought that comes into our minds. But the priesthood has been compromised. Eli and his sons are worthless. They are not the spiritual leaders that God had intended them to be. And so God must bring about change. And eventually he's going to bring the leader David, who is going to be... Uh, obviously the forerunner of the Messiah, to return the nation to God-honoring, God-fearing people. And how is he going to do that? As he intervenes, what kind of people does God use? He uses these nobodies. We talked about that last time. Elkanah is a nobody from nowhere. And his wife, Hannah, who is going through trial and suffering. God is going to bring about the revival and restoration of his nation through a barren woman. God does this. God frequently does this. He brings about his plans and purposes through things that we do not expect. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following says this. I know you're familiar with it. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chooses lowly things of this world, despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And he does this for a reason. The scripture continues and says, why does God choose lowly, despised, unknown things? He does that so that no one may boast before him, so that no one can say, well, this thing came about because of our great pastor, or this thing came about because of our skill and our money and our resources. God, God doesn't work in that way. And the greatest way he demonstrates that is by using the foolishness of the cross to bring about our salvation. The cross, it says in Scripture, is a stumbling block to Jews. They just can't get past that a Messiah would be cursed. Of course, the Old Testament says, cursed is anybody that hangs on a tree. So they did, just did not see the Messiah as Jesus, and they rejected him. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. That's what Scripture says. How can we trust a beaten, crucified Messiah? But to those of us who know Christ, the cross is our only hope and greatest glory. For it's in the cross that we find the forgiveness of our sins. But that's a foolish way that God has chosen. Wise people. We just talked about it in Sunday school. It seems like every Sunday Derek is mentioning something that is also uh, perfectly pertinent to what we're talking about. We have w wise people who reject the teaching of the cross because they just can't understand it. God has chosen this quote-unquote foolish way to to achieve for us redemption. And anybody in here today who repents of their sins, exercises faith in Christ and his work on the cross for you can have that salvation if you would but first stop seeking your own salvation. Stop trusting in your own self-righteousness. This is what the world does. They seek to gain acceptance from God based on their own record of good works. And scripture tells us that is nothing but filthy rags. God does not accept that. So would you turn from those things? Turn from your own works to Christ who has achieved salvation for you. Now here in Samuel, God is seeking to change and cleanse his nation. And he's going to use this humble, obedient, praying woman who nobody has ever heard of. Why? So he can receive the glory and nobody can boast. 
Nobody can boast. And still God uses people like that. So what we want to ask ourselves today is as we see God working in the beginning steps of God bringing about Samuel into the world, who's going to eventually be the kingmaker and, and anoint Saul and then finally anoint David, I, want to, I don't want to be too simplistic, but I'm going to be simplistic. We're just going to talk about two things today that we see in Hannah's life that, that God responded to, that God used, and examine how God still works through people like that. Here's the two things, and then we'll spend the rest of the time talking about it, okay? Hannah was, number one, prayerful in her afflictions, and second, faithful in her commitments. She was prayerful in her afflictions and faithful in her commitments. And I guess the the thing I want to propose to us today is that God, when He's going to do a work in the world, these are the type of people He uses. Prayerful, faithful people. And we're going to expand on those things. Let's start with number one. Prayerful in her afflictions. And I want to eventually mention three things beneath this thought. Now, we're aware of Hannah's sorrow. If you weren't with us a couple weeks ago or you're not familiar with this story, Hannah is barren. For a person living in this time period, and even for people living in our day, people who can't have children, well, what's wrong with you? Well, God must not be blessing you, right? I mean, you're in your 30s. Why aren't you having children? And no one really understands some of the consequences behind some of those things. And people can say things that are honestly unkind or, or tactless. That's what Penina is doing to Hannah in the beginning of this chapter. Again, culturally, Elkanah, Elkanah would take a second wife to prolong his name. We're not going to get into the polygamy aspects. We talked about that previously. So he could prolong his name. He took a second wife. And Penina was bearing sons and daughters. This woman was just having children. Every year, a child. Hannah, Nothing. And Penina would give her a hard time when they would go to worship, and probably the rest of the year as well. Verse number 6 of 1 Samuel 1, as you look in your Bibles, her rival used to provoke her grievously. And we don't have to ask ourselves, I wonder how Hannah felt about all this. right? Because Scripture tells us, again, looking in our Bibles, verse 10, she is deeply distressed. End of verse number 10. She is bitterly weeping. Look down to verse number 16, when Eli confronts her. I'm not drunk. I am full of anxiety, full of great anxiety and vexation. I mean, she is deeply troubled by her situation. Now, she is also a God-fearing woman, so she understands that somebody is sovereign over her affliction. She recognizes that God is the one who closes and opens the womb, And we recognize that too. God is the one who brings afflictions and sufferings and trials into our lives. I mean, two very uh, kind of in-your-face things in our life just this week. Our neighbor, our 80-year-old neighbor, was out for his walk on Monday and is just lost. He's just lost. And he's been lost all week and people are... Uh, looking all over for me. He's just, can you imagine the sorrow that that family feels knowing, I mean, either he's, he's dead or he's alone or he's, he has some dementia. Imagine the sorrow that these people are feeling. And then a, a friend of ours who used to live down the road from us when we lived in Lapeer has seven children. Her husband was killed in a car accident on Monday. Who is responsible for these things? I mean, I could list some of the sorrowful things that us as a congregation have gone through. I won't point out. Some of you are going through some things right now. Some of you experienced some things in the past. And because we know that God is sovereign in all things, 
it'd be very easy for us to blame God for the situation that He brought in our life. Right? Anybody there? God, you are responsible for this. I hate you. Could be the response that some people have. Why did you do this? If you really cared about me, you would not have fill in the blank of the sorrow or trial that you've experienced or are experiencing. That would be a very easy response. Hannah doesn't do that. Doesn't blame God, doesn't recoil from God, does what our song was saying. Afflicted saint to Christ draw near. A better response for us in sorrow and affliction is to run to God in prayer. In fact, in our afflictions, I bet you some of you would say amen to this if we said amen in here, and maybe that's a good thing that you should. When you've experienced affliction, sometimes you, you experience a deeper uh, awareness of God's grace that you would not have experienced had you not experienced that sorrow or trial. I think some of you would agree with that, especially as we respond to it in a proper way. The fullness of his blessing that we might never know without our trial. So, Hannah is prayerful in her affliction. Let's make three quick bullet statements underneath that thought. First, Hannah prayed to the Lord. That seems a little bit redundant, I want to explain. Hannah prayed to the Lord. This is verse number 10. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord. Did you know and are you aware that when struggles and afflictions come into your life, it is not wrong to ask God to change it? You aware of that? We don't have to put on this pious attitude that says, well, God sent me this affliction and I don't have any right to ask him to change it. You, you do. You have, and the example is of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I don't want to go through this. If it is possible, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, I will experience it if that's what you desire. Not my will, but thine be done. There is nothing wrong with going to God in prayer. In fact, it is encouraged. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares upon Him because, say it, He cares for you. Psalm 37, 5, maybe a lesser known verse. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. And how's this for point blank truth? James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Are you suffering? Are you enduring some sorrow or trial? Pray about it. Pray about it. I like what one person said. Um, God can handle our tears. God, God is aware of the sorrow and He wants you to express it to Him. Sometimes, when we're experiencing trials or sorrows, we, we look at every other avenue except prayer. How can we solve this ourselves? Right? And... What, what, what can we go about? Who can, who can we meet with that can help us solve this problem? Who can we call? What can we do? What medicine can we take? What, what class can we go to? And we often ignore this first and important step. Of course, we are supposed to thank God in all things. I'm not saying when we pray to God, we, uh, we necessarily complain about our situation. We give thanks for what He brings into our lives. Philippians 2 also tells us that we are to do all things without murmurings or complaining, but we are encouraged to come before the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Right? You familiar with that song? Why don't we sing that real quick, shall we? I know that's a little awkward for us, but this is, this is a reminder of what I'm trying to get across to you, and we won't have Leah come up.
Because we're so busy running around trying to solve the problem that we're facing. Hannah shows us what to do. Goes to the Lord and prays. Seek the Lord in prayer. Not only is this an encouragement to do as individuals, as a family, but in our spiritual struggle as a church. What does Ephesians 6 tells us? What is our struggle really against? Physical flesh and blood? It's against the principalities and powers and the rulers of this world. And so the armor is given to us and, and the encouragement in Ephesians chapter 6 is to pray. And what we have done is laid down that spiritual weapon of prayer and try to do everything in our own human skill and strength to advance the agenda of the church. If we just work harder and add new programs. Folks, there are seats available at our prayer meetings. We pray Sunday night at 4.30. We pray Wednesday night. There are seats available for you. Let us seek God in prayer. Jesus tells us in Luke, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Let us be like the disciples who approached Jesus and said, teach us to pray. Second, not only did Hannah pray to the Lord, which is an example to us, go to the Lord in prayer, but he, she prayed, it tells us, to the Lord of hosts. Verse number 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. That's how she addresses him. Back in verse number 3, it is mentioned that the sacrifice is made to the Lord of hosts. Middle of verse number 3. And this is the first time that that name of God is used in the Bible. What does it mean? Hosts can mean a number of things, but generally it means armies that belong to the Lord. He is the Lord of the armies. And these armies are referred to in Joshua as angels. They are referred to in Isaiah as stars. They are referred to in 1 Samuel as men. It can be any army that the Lord is in charge of. Here's what a commentator says about the name. This name that Hannah uses expresses the infinite resources and power that are at God's disposal as he works on behalf of his people. What kind of resources does God have? Answer is unlimited. What kind of army does God command? Unlimited. Several make mention of the Lord telling Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush that he has seen the affliction of his people and has heard the voice of their groaning. I don't know if Hannah had access to Exodus chapter 3 here. I, don't, I just don't know. Maybe she knew that story as it was told down. I, I don't know if she had a scroll that she could read it. I think she probably was aware, and I think she's making this prayer in the same way. Look, on verse, look at verse number 11 when she says, Look on my affliction. Perhaps she's thinking back to how Moses heard God say, I have seen the affliction of my people, and Hannah's saying, Lord, Lord, see mine too. Isn't this presumptuous on Hannah's part? I mean, for God to care about a whole group of people, the whole nation that he has called out, and to bring forth a million people out of the mighty hand of Pharaoh, yeah, we can understand God, he, he's got to take care of those big, big things. Hannah is just a, a lonely, barren nobody, but what she's saying is, I have the faith, God, that the way you work there, you can work here too. Great faith. God, see my affliction too and act upon mine and remember me. It's not like she's saying, it's not like she's saying, hey God, I'm still here. She's saying, remember has the idea of act on my behalf too. 
almost as if, and no one can say for sure if she was thinking about the Exodus passage, but almost as if, remember when you did that? Do that for me. And she's not presumptuous to say, God, you have all these resources. Will you use them on my behalf? Isn't this great? This is great. And God's resources are available to the people who will pray for them. We talk all the time about, well, maybe God, and we don't maybe say this, but we think, well, maybe a church like this just can't succeed anymore. We've got we've to do different things and, and kind of adapt the way other churches are adapting and water down the gospel and, and be inclusive and accepting. What is this to the Lord of hosts? There's all the resources available. And I like the way Hannah prays here. She also is very careful to announce three times in verse number 11, look at the repetition, your servant, your servant, your servant. She recognizes her position at the same time she recognizes God's. For Hannah, the power of God, someone wrote, was not simply confined to military exploits, but she believed he knew all about her and could give her a son if it be in his will. So here's encouragement to you before we go on to the third thought. God sees, God knows, and God cares. Maybe that's all you need to hear today. You're going through some sorrow or trial or affliction. Or even as a church, the things we're trying to accomplish for the Lord. God sees, God knows, and God cares. So don't neglect going to Him in prayer and counting on all those resources that are available to the Lord of hosts. James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. I believe that God wants us to come to Him. And He even wants us to presume that He wants to work. Jesus Himself said, ask and it will be given you. What about when prayers aren't answered? I was going to say that later, but let's say it right now. You're going through affliction and you ask God to help and the answer doesn't seem to come. Hannah's going to get her son. Some people don't get their baby. Some people lose the loved one. Some people's husbands never trust Christ. Uh, whatever affliction or cancer doesn't, isn't prayed away. What about that? I copied this out of one of the books because the man says it so well. A guy by the name of Blakely in his commentary on 1 Samuel. Here's what he urges. Every sincere prayer offered in the name of Christ is heard and dealt with by God in the way that seems good to Him. So whatever reason for the apparent silence of God, we can rest assured that He hears our prayers. What true Christian is there who cannot add testimonies from his own history to that effect, that God hears our prayers? If we have prayers, this is important, if we have prayers that are not answered or that we do not have knowledge of an answer, can we not afford to wait until God gives us that explanation? And when God gives that explanation, I don't know that he ever is, but when he gives that explanation, the writer says, do we not have cause to believe that it will redound to the praise of God? And that many things in reference to which we could not see at the time that were dark and terrible will be fully explained to the overwhelming testimony that God is love. Let me just express that because sometimes when you read, you check out or whatever. But 
The guy is saying, in your unanswered prayers or the assumed or perceived silence of God, been praying for my spouse for 30 years, he's not trusted Christ. Prayed for my loved one, prayed for a child, whatever it might be, and God seems to not answer. When the answers eventually come, and I don't think God is going to sit us down and have a no, here's why I didn't. We're just, that's not going to be important to us at that time. But what we will recognize is however God answered that prayer was in His wisdom and in His goodness and He loved us in the answering of that prayer even though we may have wanted something else. And we have to have the heart to accept that. Maybe that's an encouragement for those who are struggling with that. Hannah is asking for her heart's desire, but her posture in prayer is with respect and humility and eventually to give the son that she wants back to God. So, is this a little bargaining chip that Hannah's doing? Hey, God, give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. Was she bribing God in this way? I don't believe so, for a couple of reasons. First of all, she ultimately wants God's glory in the life of her son. She wants to give him back to God so he can serve the Lord. This is the point of the Nazarite um, vow, and, and we're not going to get into that except to look at verse number 11, the end of it. She says, God, I will give you back this son all the days of his life, and this is the Nazarite part, no razor will touch his head. You know, Nazarite vow would be stay away from wine, uh, cutting your hair like this. Um, Samson was a, was a prime example of this, not cutting your hair rather, no razor shall cut. I said that backwards. Ultimately, being a Nazarite meant living separately unto God in his holy service. Every action was a holy action. And that's what she's saying her child's life would be. So she's not bribing God in the sense that uh, I, I will just give him back to you, but, but I want that for his life. And we know that, well, think about what James says about when, she, when he says, you ask, you do not have because you do not ask. He also says, you do not have because you ask amiss. Because you want to consume it on your lusts. James says if we ask that way, we will not receive. So how do we know that Hannah did not ask for it in her own lusts because she received her answer? You follow what I said there? Maybe I said that too quickly. So if Hannah would have been asking amiss, she would not have, based on the principle of Scripture, she would not have received Samuel. She's asking for him for the right reasons to bring God the ultimate glory. Third thought under this. Hannah prayed to the Lord. Hannah prayed to the Lord of hosts. And last, before we get into the second part, Hannah's prayer changed her. Hannah, Hannah's prayer changed her. We often hear this, and you may have it cross-stitched somewhere, prayer changes things. And we've talked about that in the past. Does it really? Uh, and we're not getting into that theological discussion right now. God encourages us to pray that he might act based on our prayers. But ultimately, Hannah's prayer changed her. Skip ahead to verse number 18. Skip ahead to verse number 18. We read it already, so just to rehash, Eli observed Hannah praying and she was just mouthing the words. So he thought she was drunk. How about that? Again, we're talking about the whole priesthood of God being compromised. Here's a guy who can't discern between drunkenness and devotion. Maybe he'd never seen praying. Maybe, maybe the nation was so degenerate that no one ever prayed and he couldn't figure out what that lady was doing. She must be a drunkard. And even Hannah's statement, do not regard me as a worthless woman, some have said that that must mean this was a common thing for him to see a worthless woman, a drunken woman. And he's saying, I'm, she's saying, I'm not one of those. I'm praying. And all of a sudden, Eli backs off. As he confronts her, Hannah explains what she's been doing. 
And Eli offers a blessing. That's what I want to read. Verse number 17. So Eli heard us and kind of excuses himself about that and says, well, go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah, oh, wonderful. Your servant, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And here's how it changed her. Look at the change. She had left the meal sad back in verse number 9 when Elkanah gives her this just very husbandly attempting to be <laughs> attempting to be comforting but fails <laughs> right in verse number 8 oh Hannah what's the matter I mean how about this am I not worth more to you than 10 sons what kind of woman wants to hear that at that moment right but don't you is am I not enough and Hannah's like no <laughs> I want a baby so then after, after she runs out and prays and gives her soul to the Lord in complaint and request, she gets the blessing from Eli. And look at the change. She went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Let me ask you this question. What about her circumstances has changed? Does she have the baby? She, nothing has changed. But praying changed her. Gave her comfort assurance that God would hear and answer. Even, in, in, even if she, he, she didn't get the son, as I just read, that he would answer in his wisdom and in his goodness. Spending time in the presence of God brings comfort and it calibrates us to his will. Think about our Lord, right? Think about our Lord. Spends that one day, that one day specifically where he's spending the whole day, late into the evening, healing the people as they bring everyone with diseases and demons to him. And he stays late into the night healing them. And it says early the next morning, he what? Went out to pray. Why? For that being in the presence of God. Prayer is not always, God, here is the list of stuff I want. Do it. And when you don't do it, I'm going to get upset about it. Prayer is realigning our heart with his. Spending time in his presence, which changes us. We're often so worried about, well, does prayer change things? How about letting prayer change us? The communication with God, aligning our hearts to His will. God is, or Christ, our example. So whether in affluence or affliction, let us spend time in God's presence. As I said, individually and as a church. Third, or that was third. Okay, so that, that's prayerful. And I'm going to bring some questions up to kind of uh, screw these things a little bit in at the end, but let's go on to the second thing. She's also faithful in her commitments, okay? So these are the two main thoughts I want to bring out. Prayerful in her afflictions, faithful in her commitments. So she goes back home with Elkanah after they worship in the morning, and uh, it tells us that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord did do what Hannah desired. In verse number 20, she conceived and bore a son and named him Samuel, and she remembered, of course, that she had asked for him of the Lord. Hannah and Elkanah are, are examples of dedication and commitment in many areas. Remember, they stand as a bright light against the backdrop of the evil nature of all the people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. They are different than that. This couple stands out, even when contrasted with Eli. I mean, we're going to get into that next week or in a couple weeks. Eli and his worthless sons taking of the offering, and they are just dastardly as priests. So I want to use a couple of words to describe what kind of faithful commitment Hannah and Elkanah exemplify for us, and then we'll be done. Okay? What is the type of faithful commitment? First, it is grateful commitment. Grateful commitment. 
Everything we have is from God. You didn't need to come to church to hear that this morning, but I want you to be reminded of it. Everything we have is from God. Who can give him anything? 1 Samuel, that we're in here, chapter 1, look at verse 27. They understood this. Hannah and Elkanah understood this. Verse number 27, you're looking at it. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. So I have lent him to the Lord. Look at, look at the words. The Lord granted, we could say the Lord gave, so I am lending him. We could, we could just use the same word. The Lord gave, so I, say it, gave. The Lord gave, so I gave. And the reason Hannah is giving is because she understands that everything she receives is from the Lord. So I'm going to return this back to him. When we give to God, which we did earlier today, when we give to God, whether it be money, time, ability, children, when we give those things to God, we aren't doing that simply so God will do something back for us. Right? I'm going to tithe because I know when Scripture says I tithe that that God is going to... No. We give out of a recognition that everything we have is from Him. We are graced people. So our faithfulness to God is not motivated by duty or law or some sort of uh, restraint or routine. Our, our, all of our commitment, all of our faithful commitment is because it's motivated by God's grace. What does Titus 2 say? For the grace of God has appeared unto all, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the what? By the mercies of God that you do what? That you present, that you give your lives a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable service. This only makes sense since God has abundantly poured out bushels of blessing on you. Let us gratefully with gratitude, give back to him. Here's what J.C. Ryle says, one of my favorites. He says, people will never take up the cross and confess Jesus to the world. In other words, what he's saying, never give themselves to the Lord and live for him until they feel indebted to him. Again, the motivation for righteous living, even Ryle is saying it there, is a recognition of what Christ has done for you. Do you understand that without Christ... You're, you're on the road to hell destined for separation in eternal torment. Yet God stepped in, sent His Son to die for you and me. That simply by faith receiving that, He spares us His judgment and wrath, which we rightfully deserve. And in place of that judgment and wrath, just dumps blessings on us. And then we think, well, i got 70, 80 years, I'm going to do whatever I want here. Is that the right commitment? Is God use those type of people? That's what everybody else is doing in this period. Hannah and Elkanah, not so. The gospel gifts of grace must transform us into grateful, faithful followers of Jesus. This is not a sacrifice to give our lives to God. It's the proper thing to do. And not just for the pastor. Not just for the pastor. Well, it's good for Andy. I'm glad he's doing that. But we have our lives to live. All of us must dedicate ourselves completely and totally and gratefully to God. Grateful commitment. Second, 
they also express generous commitment. Generous commitment. Can there be a worse thing to be than stingy? Would you want to be described as stingy? I'm, I'm, I, I can be stingy in certain ways. When I get my chubby hubby ice cream, and I kind of am that, uh, but with the pretzels and the, and the chocolate in the middle, and I get that pint of ice cream, and there's a baseball game on, and Jessa, you know, she, I don't, she just turned 11, so I don't know that she's going to continue to do this, but she, she, would, she would frequently just come up to me when I'm doing that. You know? I'm stingy about that. I'm not giving her one of the pretzels out of there. I give her a little bit of the vanilla ice cream. We're stingy people, aren't we? We're stingy. The commitment that Hannah and Elkanah gave was generous. I'll come back to that in a minute. But here's, this is, I want to point this out. It's a little technical, but please stay with. Look at verse number 24. I'm going to go, I could, I could change my mind with further study, but I'm going to give to you what I think is being expressed here. When she had weaned him, she takes with her back to Shiloh to give Samuel to Eli and to put him in service. She takes with her a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She's going to offer a sacrifice. Now, if you have the ESV or the New American Standard um, or some other, version, some other version like that, you're going to have the words three-year-old bull with a little number by it probably. And in your reference Bible, it may say, some translations say three bulls. If you have the King James or New King James, it will just say three bulls, and it may have a number in there, and it may say three-year-old bull. So which is it? Well, first of all, the distinction doesn't change our faith in any way, but I, I think it should say three bulls, okay? And without getting too technical about that, turn to Numbers chapter 15 with me. Put, put a paper here or something, and let me show you uh, why this is generous, Okay? Numbers 15 expresses the law about what to sacrifice when you've made a vow similar to what Hannah did. Okay? So Hannah made this vow. Well, there's a sacrifice that goes with that vow, and Numbers 15 expresses what that should be. Okay? Verse number, uh, stand by, the numbers are small. Verse number 8. Okay, give you just a second. Numbers 15, 8. So imagine Hannah, who's made this vow, here's what it tells her to do. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice, why? To fulfill a vow, okay, so this is what she's doing, or for peace offerings to the Lord, then offer with the bull, verse 9, a grain offering of three-tenths, that's important, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil, and offer a drink offering half a hen of wine. Eight and nine are the important parts. So when you come with the offering for a vow, Bring the bull, and with the bull, how much of an ephah? This is important. Three-tenths. Now look back to what she brings when she brings Samuel and the vow in 1 Samuel 1. So she says, uh, rather the scripture tells us, uh, she remained and nursed the son until she weaned him, verse 24. When she weaned him, she took her, let's read it the way I think it is, three bulls and how much flour? An ephah, a full ephah, which is about three-fifths of a bushel. Don't let those... Uh, terms and weights and measures get you confused. She was told, based on numbers, that a bull gets three-tenths of an ephah. She brings a full ephah, which is close to three times three-tenths. Doesn't that seem, am I, am, I, am I math, is it too early for math? So there's one bull, three-tenths of an ephah. That means three bulls should have nine-tenths of an ephah or an ephah. 
She's bringing three bulls. And I think the reason, and this is what some of the writers think in reading this week, the reason they changed it to this different reading is because they're thinking, three bulls, that's overkill. What agricultural farming family is going to give three bulls when you only have to give one? It's demonstrating the generous, non-stingy commitment. I think she's offering a bull with three-tenths. A bull with three-tenths. A bull with three-tenths. I could be proven wrong later with further study. I think that's right. I honestly do. Scholars have seemed not to even believe that the offering was this generous. I don't know why they wouldn't believe that they would be this generous when they're giving their son. (laughs) What's more generous than that? What's a bull compared to a boy? But they are over the top responding to God's gifts by faithfully, gratefully, and generously giving to God. What does your commitment to God look like? Are you stingy? Do you do your work for God out of a heart of gratitude or duty? Real quick before we conclude, we have a great example of parenting as well. They are commitment to worship. They have proper priorities. Let this be encouragement to you if you're still raising children. An author writes this. Too many believing parents are driven by worldly motivations concerning their boys and girls. Christian parents are directing their children down worldly paths and are surprised when they turn out that way. That's convicting. And we have seen this. Be warned about that. What happens when you pour worldly philosophies and principles before your children and they reject Christ? It's not the main point of this passage. That's not... 1 Samuel 1 isn't talking about how to be good parents. But there is, a, there is an important principle there. The conclusion for us today is that God, in seeking to restore the nation of Israel, providing godly leadership, uses unknown, faithful, generous, grateful, prayerful people. Let me ask questions in closing. It's real easy to say at a point like this that uh, this was good for the neighbor. This was good for... Glenn, this was good for Susie, this was good for Sharon, instead of applying it to our lives. So answer these questions honestly. I just conclude with this. What dominates my prayers? Am I consumed by the glory of God? Have I joined in the weekly prayer times? Do I pour out my heart to God even in my affliction? Honestly, what does your prayer life look like? Again, that's not the main focus of this, but God uses people who pray. And in your affliction, may I encourage you that God sees, knows, and cares, run to Him in prayer. Second, am I grateful for God's gracious gospel gifts? A lot of G's there. Am I grateful for God's gracious gospel gifts? Some of you have been saved for long, you forget what you were like and where you were headed before God saved you. Along with that, does my life reflect a gratitude, a faithful commitment? Third, does my commitment to Jesus look stingy? Am 
Am I stingy with my time, with my money, with my skills? As God is moving in this nation and bringing Samuel, he will be, to a place of prominence and position of power, he uses these parents behind the scenes. He could have used anybody. He's going to do this any case, but he's chosen people who are praying, faithful, grateful, generous followers. So let us ask God for the courage to change in areas where we do not see that properly reflected in our lives. Because I want God to work through me. And there's areas that I've talked about today that I need improvement. I think we, we all would say that. So let's ask God for the courage to do that as we close in prayer.